0: Welcome to Recordings from We the People, Race in America, the Calvin Center for Faith and Writings 2016 Fall Writer Series. In this series of five events, people from diverse backgrounds, working in different genres, read or performed their work, and then discussed it with attentive audiences. What follows is the fourth event in that series, poet W. Todd Kaneko, reading from his book of elegies for dead professional wrestlers and discussing the racial and class dynamics of the sport. Recorded in the Meter Center Lecture Hall on the campus of Calvin College on November 17th, 2016. So I'm going to read you some poems from my book,
1: uh, The Dead Wrestler Elegies. My copy is much more, in much worse shape than his. Um, Before I start, um, I just want to, I need to tell you uh, about one term that's used in professional wrestling. It's the word, the word is kayfabe. The word kayfabe refers to all the ways that uh, wrestlers, managers, and performers, and bookers through all the ways they work to get the audience to believe that the fighting and the blood and the conflict in the ring, all those stories are real. This first poem um, is for Don Jardine, and Don Jardine wrestled uh, mostly in the uh, 70s and 80s under a mask. Um, he called himself the Destroyer, but... A booker somewhere decided that The Destroyer was not a cool name, not cool enough, so they renamed him and called him The Super Destroyer. <laughs> he died of a heart attack in 2006. Every night, The Super Destroyer. A body plunges through the main event to the canvas, hammerlocked, choked, a death twitch yoked to a mangle of bone. A wrestling match can be deadly for a man who believes in pain, who envies cruelty hidden behind grim faces. No, I'd go back to being a boy with my father in 1979, watching that sinister mask and a man struggling in vain against the claw holding him above the ground. My father places his palm in the center of my back, a tether to the real world where people die real deaths every night. It's terrifying, this battle between puny mortals and that faceless adversary on the other side of the ring. I pull sorrow into my arms at night, the way a man pulls another close knowing one of them must soon be defeated. When I watch men fight on television, it is my father in the the grip of the masked man. It is me held aloft by the face and slammed heavy to the floor. We are all twisted into terrible shapes before the final bell. Sputnik Monroe was a wrestler who wrestled mostly in the 50s, in the 60s. Um, it was said that um, when, he, when he was wrestling uh, in Memphis, if you would go around to the African-American homes, you would see three portraits. Uh, one was Jesus, one was Dr. Martin Luther King, and the third was Sputnik Monroe. Um, he was a white wrestler who uh, would, uh, he, he, he was a heel, a bad guy, and he amassed this huge following of almost all African-American fans, and what he would do is he would pack the stadium with his African-American fans, and, he'd, and then there'd be no more room, and so he'd go to the doorman, he'd say, well, he'd go to the Booker and say, well, you know, you could turn away all these fans and lose this money, or you could integrate the stadium, and the Booker integrated the stadium, uh, which... The legend has it that that spread to other sporting venues and other uh, entertainment uh, places in, the, in, the, in, the, in Memphis and so uh, He was kind of ahead of his time He said once said it's hard to be humble when you're 235 pounds of twisted steel and sex appeal with a body women love and women and men fear He died in his sleep in 2006. This is be more like Sputnik Monroe When my father died, he left me a trove of videotapes, a warped memorial for those men he watched with my mother before she left for parts unknown, for those fights he relived once he was laid off from the plane yards. We watched men like Sputnik Monroe bleed the hard way, shook our fists as he broke rules against guys who were easier to cheer. He was a bad Elvis, greased back hair with a shock of white. Sputnik Monroe mixed it up everywhere, a rodeo fist fight, a henhouse tornado, My mother picked a fight in an Idaho truck stop once. Once she stabbed a man's chest with her middle finger, then stepped to one side so my father could fight him in the parking lot. Afterwards, my mother was silent all the way back to Seattle. Her disgust with him, the way he wrapped his arm around her shoulder and guided her to the car and sped back to the freeway, it it hung between them from that point forward. Sputnik Monroe clobbered men wherever he went sneered at those fists raised against him in Memphis. Some nights, as my wife sleeps upstairs, I watch my father's videotapes and imagine what I would have done that day if I knew that my marriage depended on what I did with my hands. June Byers was uh, one of the uh, pioneers in women's wrestling. Uh, The fabulous Moolah once said that uh, she was one of the most famous of women's wrestlers. She said that June Byers had what she called the June Byers slap, where she would take her open hand and come down right across a person's collarbone with all her weight. Um, You're not really supposed to do that, just in case you didn't know. (laughs) June Byers died of pneumonia in 1988. June Byers knows what a woman wants. She told me why she was leaving the only way she knew how. My mother, in the driveway that night. A story about seeing June Byers defending her championship in 1955. Five rows back, my mother watched two women grapple for the belt. June Byers, foxy like a rodeo queen, tied that woman down, arms pulled back, shoulders popped from their sockets. My mother stood on her chair while the champion tossed her rival into the ropes with an elbow smash to the neck on the rebound. Spinning toe hold, butterfly stretch, pendulum backbreaker. June Byers squeezed a woman by the throat whenever the referee couldn't see. And my mother squealed with glee as Byers broke that woman's nose with a right cross. After the, after the match, my mother looked up at her father and promised to be a, a champion like June Byers, a woman more fistfight than housewife, more pocket knife than lipstick. The next day, her parents signed her up for etiquette school. <laughs> Don't go, I said, into her scent of cigarettes and beer. God, she said, don't be like your father, before unwrapping herself in my arms, her taillights vanishing in the dark. <clears throat> right before WrestleMania 1, Big John Studd was about to uh, wrestle uh, Andre the Giant. The deal was that uh, if anybody could uh, body slam Andre the Giant, they'd win $15,000. So we cut this promo. He said on this promo, Big John Stud says, take a good look at me, New York City and the rest of the world. Big John Stud, seven foot plus, nearly 400 pounds of solid muscle and I'm coming to the ring with a bag of hair that I humiliated Andre with by ripping it out of his head. I'm also bringing $15,000 because I can't be slammed. This is called Big John Stud Lost the Body Slam Challenge. (laughs) After the match, Big John Stud claimed the world could still not beat him. That Andre the Giant did not lift him over his head and slam him to the ground, the crash reverberating through our televisions. But we saw him fall and hated him for it. Sometimes a man can't help but deny those calamities lingering in the body. A fat lip, a bruised breastbone, a six pack of lawnmower beer before breakfast. After the match, my father nodded in approval as Stud ducked out of the ring with the money. As my father nodded in approval, later that night he went outside and threw rocks at the highway at all those families speeding past our building. It's difficult to bring heartache from where it hides in the body, where it masquerades as an angry beard, as bravado spilling from a man who fell while we watched. After the match, we were supposed to hate John Studd, because we saw that body slam. But we knew all too well, everyone falls eventually. Um, One of the the most well-known wrestlers in the 80s was the nature boy, Ric Flair. But before him, um, there was the nature boy, Buddy Rogers. And Buddy Rogers was the first guy to come out with a, one of the first, come out with bleach blonde hair and a big glittery robe. one of the first guys to um, do lots of f- jumping you know, drop kicks and, and flashy moves, um, and he died in 1992 after a series of strokes. <coughs> the Nature Boy Buddy Rogers is history. <coughs> in 1963, his hair bleached into sunshine, chest bronzed into flame. The nature boy Buddy Rogers parades to the ring wearing his world championship belt. He ricochets off the ropes, flying drop kicks and elbows before grapefinding a man's legs into submission. Years later, other men swagger through arenas and television studios, clad in starshine and down, seducing us with muscular tongues. Listen up, slap nuts, I'm the show snopper. Woo! A feathery kiss, gusting through night for those pretty girls who come to scream a man's name in the dark. At a wrestling match, we are all young again, fathers and sons watching the Nature Boy's descendants fight under the lights. My mother loved the way Buddy Rogers taunted his enemies with a peacock strut and a lion sneer at the monkeys and wildebeest tangled around his feet. My father loved looking at photos of my mother, and I am sitting in my father's chair, where I look at these things he's left behind. I see a young man swagger. The vainglorious whisper of a motorcycle at dawn, oh, if only we could be in different places. Owen Hart, uh, he died in the ring. He died at a pay-per-view in Kansas City called Over the Top. Um, That was in 1999. Long live the King of Hearts. Because Owen Hart wrestled as the king, as the rocket, as a masked hero called the Blue Blazer. Because my father watched the Blue Blazer on television that night he fell from the rafters and died. Because we both wanted to believe that a man can fly. Because there is no such thing as flight, only that indeterminate period before a man falls. Because there is no such thing as falling, only memory. Because when my father's heart gave out, he fell off his bar stool and hit his head on the floor. Because he lived in Seattle and I was in Michigan, years after my mother disappeared from the map. Because my father was not a professional wrestler, but a welder in the plane yards. Because a man must do the job he is given. Because there's no such thing as flight, only desire for freedom from home. Because my father claims to have seen the blue blazer fall that night on television, his head snapped back like a man who's just lost everything. Because he wanted something to talk about with me those nights we sat together watching wrestling. Because no one saw what happened that night except that audience in Kansas City. Because no one saw what happened that night except the bartender who poured him one last beer. Because it's easy to hurt a man when you don't mean to. Because the heart is only as strong as the flesh surrounding it. The body is only as strong as a man can stand it to be. Because there's no such thing as falling. Only belief in flight. I got these two poems here that I'm going to read for you now. These are, um, uh, Cleanth Brooks tells us that there's a heresy to the idea of paraphrasing a poem. That we can't paraphrase a poem, right? So here are some poems. These are a couple poems that attempt to paraphrase a wrestling promo. Uh, Mae Young. If you've watched wrestling any time in the last ten years, you know, might recognize Mae Young from your television as a ninety-year-old woman who has the sexual libido of uh, a twenty-something-year-old. Right? She's a an old, wo- a, a, an elderly woman who just attacks men sexually. Um, before that, though, she was a wrestler. She wrestled. Um, um, in the 30s and the 40s, she, uh, another pioneer in women's wrestling, um, men would berate her and then she would kick their butts. She, uh, in a fam- she once said, Anyone, anybody can be a babyface, what we call a clean wrestler. They don't have to do nothing. It's the heel that carries the whole show. I've always been a heel and I wouldn't be anything else but. Mae Young has always been the heel. Anyone can be the tulip. The nightingale, cherry blossoms wafting across orchards in summer. It's easy for a woman to cock her hip and smile at boys, for a girl to glimmer in rhinestones and lipstick. Screw that. I've never seen a woman I couldn't lick, never a man I couldn't hammerlock and stomp to the canvas. Forget flowers, following animals naked and pale through groves to gravestones. Give me a cigar and a pair of trousers, zipper up the front and roll to the cuffs. We can go down to the waterfront, pick fights with longshoremen, with sharks. Anyone can get married, start a family and dance to songs on the radio. I'm the alligator smile, perilous and sexy like a cocaine spoon, like, like a barbed wire kiss. I fight in a cage because some nights I'm showered with beer bottles and old vegetables. Other nights, men seek shelter for my elbows and knees. It's easy for stadiums to rally against me, for cities to curse my name all night. I'll always be the heel, desire and violence flickering together like a house and a fire, like your house and my fire. Um, Bad News Brown in a famous promo, he tells us, this is another one, this is basically poems where I get the threaten to kick your ass. <laughs> famous promo, Bad News Brown tells us, you don't got to worry about who you are whether you're a guy, whether you're a girl, whether you're black, whether you're white, because you're going to be black and blue when I get done with you. Bad News Brown says you don't have to worry. You don't have to worry about your guts or jitters, whether you're a cockeyed poppin' jay crowing about tomorrow morning's fray or a beer-bellied sharecropper, soft parts begging for stiff knees and elbows. I'm a tire iron, a sledgehammer, a shotgun double-barreled and sawed off for snail-eyed mama's boys afraid of city sounds at night, for spineless cockroaches scurrying into hidey-holes. A man squeezes his body into a fist, rumbles through subways, through tenements overrun by alley cats, by sewer rats, by yellow-bellied jellyfish cringing at the thunder a man makes when he speaks. This is the sound of courage, a lion in my chest chewing down a chicken neck clodhopper, slobber knocking every crybaby featherweight. Don't worry about the different kinds of men you can be. My name is a mouthful of terrible things lurking in dark parking lots, under street lights waiting to clobber any weak-kneed fishwife, milk-livered foot clown-shoed fraidy-cat. You should be worried. Um, I'm going to close with three new poems, three relatively new poems. And these are not wrestling poems, sorry. <laughs> This um, Prince died recently. Um, So this is a poem I wrote for him. Again, Cleonth Brooks says we can't paraphrase poem, but here I am trying to paraphrase this song by Prince. Let's go crazy. Tonight the radio knows how it feels to be turned on and tuned in to the wrong frequencies. Let's all shake our hips to its sputtering hips. Let's go. Listen up, my brothers, unemployed, unnoticed, undead, and eaten by machines until all we have are hungry ghosts. My brothers with fake wallets and chicken bones, bodies made of firecrackers while the world sprays us all down in flames. Let's go. Listen up, my sisters, overworked, overlooked, and underpaid over and over again because they're not my brothers. My sisters with tongues wrapped around the English language tighter than America expects, cheeks smearing with sweat and mascara and stardust, let's go. My children, who are afraid to go outside for fear of bullets or handcuffs or old sneakers dangling from power lines overhead, let's go. Our mothers with sore backs and breasts and bruises on the inside, with beautiful morning faces and empty cradles, let's go. Our fathers, who live in faraway places, Life more shadows than flesh, more skeleton than breadwinner, like the stars are more cold light than cosmic fire. Oh, no. Let's go. Let's go. Let's go, because the afterlife ain't no place for those houses we once lived in, drenched with those aromas of weird foods our grandmothers once cooked. Not weird, but precious. Not food, but life. Not cooked, but resurrected to remind us We don't have to live in houses where the elevators don't travel to every floor. In houses without elevators because one day the world will take from you someone you cannot live without. Everyone you cannot live without. Everyone throw our fists up high so the angels feel us punching at their floor, stomp our feet, and give the devil a shiny new concussion. His head orbited by wiggly stars and Tweety Bird because tonight the radio comes to life for us. All we need is to move our bodies together. The right song gets our party started. The right song is revolution. Self-portrait as my newborn son who cries all night long. Tonight I'm a boy. And my hungry voice goes on until sunrise. And when I cry, I hope someone will do something. Tonight, my voice blooms colicky into sorrow for boys who will be mistaken for a switchblade or a gun, or just a boy who cries at night. Because in Cleveland, policemen shot a boy in the park and no one did anything. Tonight, my voice is a pterodactyl cry, an unrelenting song about extinction and a speculative fear of the dark. The night is beautiful, filled with boys' voices mingling with the moon's howl, with hunger pangs. Because in Ohio, a boy was shot and died late in the afternoon, the bullet blossoming where his hunger once flourished. And no one did anything to help him. Tonight, I shriek along with all those animals ready for the slaughter, who are not animals but boys. Laughter, knotted to bone, birthstone and cemetery plot, because in America, a boy is not just one boy. He's a teenager gunned down in a Walmart toy aisle, a man caught in a police chokehold, a woman dead in a Texas child's jail cell, and no one does anything. One day, I might be the fading glow of a cigarette in the backyard, a pair of sneakers dangled from a power line over this world into which I've been born. Tonight, my hunger rises inside me until it bursts into flame. Tonight, there's no such thing as hunger, just a feeling that something is wrong. Tonight my voice is this fierce cry, flowering from milk, unfurlowing into a wail that no one seems to hear. How much time do I have, Lisa? Five yeah. Okay, I will read this one last poem, and um, this is a brand new one. You know, since, um, Since the uh, election on, on the 8th uh, as people of color and people of, of, of different uh, gender identities and people who are of uh, different sexual orientations are, are scared for what's gonna happen. Um, people of different faiths are scared of what might happen. Um, a lot of us people who write have been feeling this, this thing, this thing that says what the heck is it that we do uh, as writers. It's important though. Um, It's important because poems give us hope, I think. Poems, um, I I wrote this just off the cuff on Facebook today to a friend. Uh, It was just this cheesy thing that I wrote just off the top of my head. But I think I believe it, that as writers we have this void inside of us and we write to fill that void But our readers have a void too. And so we have to remember that when we're filling our voids as writers, it's not a selfish, navel-gazing thing. We are trying to fill the voids in the world. So this is a poem for the future. I wrote it like two days ago, and then in my hubris sent it off to a magazine (laughs) like that night. (laughs) We'll see what happens. Poem for the future. Oh, and before I read this, thank you to Lisa for introducing, uh, for uh, inviting me out to be here tonight. Thank you to Lou for the great uh, introduction. Um, Thank you to Moose, who's we're going to have this conversation about something here in a bit. Uh, And thank you to to you guys for coming out. Uh, I'm really, really, really happy to be here. Poem for the future. Remember that history is always a sad story, eventually. Remember how the world gets drunk to forget its children, tiny and strapped into car seats in case of emergency. How we try to forget history beating in our chests, a rhythm that breaks all our bones. Remember those fish swimming upstream to spawn, how most of them won't ever make it. How it feels like most of us won't make it right now. Remember, remember that fear tastes like salt water in the hook. Courage tastes like fire water and the hook. Remember. History just may seem beautiful one day. But for now, remember remember how your father looked at you while you slept every night, one hand on your chest, one hand on history to protect you. Remember how we can 't ever protect anyone from sad stories. One day. History will careen across several lanes of traffic and into a pond. History will take us down with it, like it always does. But remember, history will survive, and so will we. Won't we? Thank you.
2: Well, thanks. Thank you. Um, yeah, honestly, thank you. It, it, hearing some of your wrestling poems, I even picked up things that I hadn't read. And as a wrestling fan, there are phrases in there that I know that I can catch that, you know, provide something deeper to, to yeah. the poem. But at the same time, I think also for folks that aren't wrestling fans, I feel like the book does a great job of revealing sort of the beauty and the pain and the agony and the you know the poetry of wrestling. Um, which is cool. Uh, so I, I think I got involved because at Calvin College I'm probably the most prominent pro wrestling uh, apologist. Um, so it makes a lot of sense to me why professional wrestling would be the subject of poetic expression or academic discussion. But uh, can you maybe share a little bit about how this project came about? The, the First day?
1: of all, I don't think you got to apologize for being a wrestling oh, fan because oh, no. pro wrestling is an art. I mean, it is an art form. It is. It is, well, it's, 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 it's part acting, bad acting, it's part acting, it's part acrobatics, it's part, right, it's, oh, yeah. there's drama, it's all about storytelling and making that person in the back row feel something, right, so mm-hmm. that's, wrestling is, wrestling is, is, it's, I think it's a high art form in disguise,
3: mm-hmm. oh, it's no a question. high
1: art form in disguise as like a million, multi-million dollar industry mm-hmm. now, mm-hmm. right, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so back to your, back to your, your question, <laughs> which was about, like, how the book, right? Yeah, yeah. So um, I, like to tell, um, I like to tell my students that, um, that uh, people who are obsessed with things have an advantage over every other kind of writer, right? Mm-hmm, because if mm-hmm. you're obsessed with stuff, you can always know what you're writing about. So if you love hockey, you should be writing hockey poems. If you love soap operas, where are your soap opera poems? If you love trashy sci-fi romances, those are your poems, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. And so I think that for me, um, I'm a, I have been obsessed with professional wrestling ever since I was a kid. Mm-hmm. Um, and like we were talking before, I, I fell off probably, you know, when I discovered um, girls and then got back into it. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> in my 30s, mm-hmm. when I was like, okay, girls don't like me. Um, <laughs> so, and I got back into it, and then, you know, I just rediscovered that, that, sort mm-hmm. of, that sort of obsession. I think it's those childhood obsessions that reveal who we are. So, if you love hockey now, great. You probably loved hockey when you were a kid. Mm-hmm. Or if you loved, we talked about Transformers earlier. If you loved the Transformers cartoons when you were a kid, right, there's something there that says something about who you are as an adult. You've just forgotten it, right? right. So. Part of this project was sort of um, reclaiming that,
3: mm-hmm, right?
1: Mm-hmm. Said so this is who I am, um, and, and wanting to do something. Also, it sounded like a really horrible idea. Write yeah. so a full-length <laughs> book about pro wrestling. Uh, it sounds really stupid, um, but I took it as a challenge, right? I was like, um, "Okay, I'll do it," you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and not just that I'm going to do it, but I want to do it and see if I can make it work. Right. Right. Uh, and so it was that challenge that, that, that was really appealing to me too.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Mm-hmm. Well, in, uh, even from poems you read here, it seems like wrestling was was a family event. Was, is is that right? It's something that your father saw, or is that
1: when I grew just... okay? When I was growing up, we had no sports in my house at all. Okay. Uh, my stepfather was a painter. My mom was a metal worker, uh, a silversmith and they hated sports, so I did not know how to play sports, right? Mm-hmm. So I'm in, in gym class, and like, I didn't know that when you're playing baseball, you could force a run. I thought that, <laughs> well, if he's going to go out, I'm just going to stay on base. Why would I run? That's dumb, but it turns out you can force a run, and so um, that was just the story of my high school sports. I had no idea what was going on, but when I would go to my dad's house on the weekends, mm-hmm. um, we would watch pro wrestling at midnight. It was a this is back um, in the, the early '80s when it was a uh, uh, local promotions, um, and we watched this promotion out of Portland uh, at midnight. And I remember, um, I remember watching Kurt Henning, who would eventually become Mr. Perfect, cutting a promo. And Playboy Buddy Rose comes out with a chair and hits him right. And then the Dynamite Kid comes out and they start pummeling on on him. Mm-hmm, I'm like, mm-hmm. Dad, Dad, why do they call the police? And he looks at me. He's like. I mean, it's time for bad kid. Um, <laughs> but, I mean, that's what – it's funny. I mean, that's my experience mm-hmm. with pro wrestling is I remember watching it with my dad. And, and you know, it's funny. You, you say, well, I'm the, an, you're an apologist for pro wrestling. But, sure. you know, most people, when I, I start talking to them, they're like, oh, yeah, I watched pro wrestling. Mm-hmm. When mm-hmm. I was a kid, I never watched it anymore, right? And they are very much that way, right. disowning right. what they did as kids. Mm-hmm. But eventually we start talking about their dads mm-hmm. or their cousins or their grandmas, right? The people they would watch it with. And, and for me, you know, the power of anything you watch in TV isn't necessarily the TV show itself. It's the, it's the, who you watched it with, particularly right. with pro wrestling. Mm-hmm. Cause if you're a kid, you can't be watching it by yourself, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Your, your parents are usually there with you. Um, I mean, I feel like the, that's sort of the power of, of pro wrestling is that it brings those people together, you know, mm-hmm. and then eventually those people are gone. Right. And what do you got? You know, mm-hmm. you got your memories, uh, but it's this one thing that you can, you can watch right and, re- right. and remember them.
2: Yeah. Now, uh, again, I'm a pro wrestling fan. I think something we could probably agree on is that, you know, if you turn on wrestling on, on Monday night, maybe Tuesday night. Both. Uh, yeah, that's right uh you know i'm sure i'm sure you guys know what we're talking about smackdown's on tuesday if you've been out of it for a few years um the the way that race and ethnicity the way that it is approached in the world of wrestling sometimes sometimes exaggerated sometimes even invented you know as as this way to create an alliance with a wrestler in the in the audience or create an instant enemy you know if you know, they, they would just cast someone as, as a Nazi in the 50s just to get booze wherever they go. Uh, you know, what, what, what is the experience like as an Asian-American man, uh, you know, growing up and seeing uh, how, you know, wrestlers of color were used or the roles that they played? Like, what are your thoughts on some of the uh, challenges wrestling has with cultural competency?
1: <laughs> wrestling as an art form started back... Um in the carnivals, right? Mm -hmm. And so there are these traveling carnivals that go around. And the wrestling show would go around places like carnivals too. Um, And they'd have a typical setup would be, there'd be a guy that afternoon who'd take on all comers, right? I'll take all comers, last 30 seconds in the ring with me and right, you win all this money. He was a really skilled wrestler, right? And so he would grab someone out of the audience and he'd hold them on the ground and just tie them up in knots until they're screaming, right? And he wouldn't let them go, right? um that guy was a plant mm-hmm. because someone in the audience would mm-hmm. be like let that guy go because mm-hmm. he's bigger right a bigger guy let him go you let him go or i'll kick your butt right and the rest would be like how about if we do it tonight we'll do it tonight tickets a dollar right in the tent the guy who stood up was also a plant
3: mm-hmm.
1: right mm-hmm. and so wrestling really kind of grows out of an us versus them right it's it's really home versus visitor right mm-hmm. the visitor is always the heel Right? Mm-hmm. And you see that through. Um, I, I think that you see that through. Um, you know the Russian wrestlers who mm-hmm. are really Americans. Right. right? The, the Iron Sheet comes out during mm-hmm. the Iran Contra, uh, the the the, uh, the hostage crisis. Right. Iron Sheet comes out and he's spitting on the on Americans. And mm-hmm. uh, who's his who's who's his main enemy? Hulk Hogan, the real American. Mm-hmm. Right. So, mm-hmm. uh, it really is this very us versus them. Um, but it's also. Us versus them in terms of whiteness. Um, in Memphis, uh, which is one of the hotbeds of pro wrestling, back you know one of the one of the crucial places to follow if you're looking at the history of pro wrestling is Memphis. Um, out of Memphis came Sugar Bear Harris, and Sugar Bear Harris was this big African American wrestler who um, was looking for a job, and Jerry the King Lawler sees him, um, and he gave him a makeover. He painted, put some war paint on him and put him in a loincloth and rechristened him Kamala, Mm. the Ugandan giant. And he's Ugandan, a cannibal, so, right? And he comes to the ring with a spear and a shield. And um, he really was supposed to be sort of uh, a parody of Idi Amin, Mm -hmm. right, who Mm. at the time was the big bad guy overseas. Um, But it's problematic race-wise you know and i you know you can follow pro wrestling up to the present day where mm-hmm. you have african american uh wrestlers um dancing- mm-hmm. to funky music right um talking like church preachers mm-hmm. um it's yeah it it it's tough watching those stereotypes come out the it, you know there was that article in The Atlantic a while back that said it critiqued uh Pro wrestling for never having a black champion, right? right. right? Um, Ron Simmons was yeah. champion but yeah, for like three days in another promotion, mm-hmm. but the WWF had never had a, a black champion mm-hmm. um, until so, so one of the someone said, "Well, wait, The Rock is half black," mm-hmm. and the writer said, "But The Rock isn't really black," um, and then people got mad,
3: right? Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. I think
1: what's missed here is that The Rock is a black guy who was not booked like a black guy. He was booked like sure. a white wrestler, right, right? right? So he came out, he debuts as, uh, if you look at The Rock's history, you'll see he debuts with really funny hair and a loincloth. and He comes out as a Samoan,
3: mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, An Pacific Islander. And then what happens, he didn't get over, so they rebranded him as sort of a Black Panther, mm-hmm. right? And when he really gets over, they strip him of all those gimmicks and he just right. becomes The Rock and they just strip them of all the gimmicks, Mm -hmm. right? And Mm -hmm. so wrestling does this weird thing where they, uh, whoever is booking has decided, well, we need these sort of markers of otherness uh, to mark who we're rooting for Mm -hmm. uh, and who we're not rooting for. And if the stereotype is one that we find acceptable, that is African-Americans who who dance and sing or or, um, Indian wrestlers who do Bollywood dancing Mm -hmm. uh, or, uh, Asian ri- wrestlers who do kung fu, right? These are acceptable things, <laughs> acceptable things. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, they just to mark who's us and who's them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. I, I, I really think that's the mindset behind it.
2: Sure, sure. I think that's true. For, like there are times, though, throughout history, thank goodness, where where it might flip, where you know, I mean, it somehow you are convincing white southern crowds uh, to cheer for the junkyard dog or something like that, you know, that can be uh, I don't know, that that somehow wrestling through that us versus them thing might be the one time that it tricks a white supremacist. But part of it is sort
1: guy. of like, you know, junkyard dog. Sure. You guys know junkyard dog?
2: JYD? No?
1: African American wrestler. <laughs> big guy, wear chains around his neck. Symbols of his slavery. Um, there again, mm-hmm. right? He's mm-hmm. a black man in chains is mm-hmm. your... your your hero because mm-hmm. he's in chains he's not a black guy without chains which is totally different also you have to pair him with dick murdoch mm-hmm. who is a cowboy mm-hmm. so you had a white cowboy and the black man in chains now you can root for them you know yeah um so there is this sort of iconography that they're working with like mm-hmm. you can tell who you're supposed to root for because you can tell much by looking at them Roman right. you know, roland barth writes that about that in world wrestling who's the you know, who's who's uh you can tell who the good guy is and who the bad guy is by who's grotesque, mm-hmm. right? And the black man in chains is, is not grotesque because he carries that symbolism of, 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 of his bondage mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. to the ring with him. Mm-hmm. And I know most wrestling fans are like, oh, come on. He was wearing chains because he's a junkyard dog. It was a dog chain, right? Uh, but we have, you can look at the symbolism. We can right. look at that as sort of uh, the whole, right? And if mm-hmm. you look at the whole, you realize, oh, it's really just one more instance of that.
2: You know? Yeah. Uh, I want to open it up uh, to folks, uh, but we have one. We have a traditional question we ask all our poets. Um, wh- who's your favorite wrestler?
3: <laughs>
1: <laughs> My favorite wrestler of yeah. all time yeah, who's your is a guy. Well, I have three answers. Okay, right? fine. <laughs> if you're n- is there any wrestling fans in here at all? Anybody who watches wrestling other than me and Moose? Okay, Okay. good. <laughs> what okay, good? <laughs> good. My... Um, the, the answer I say to people who don't know wrestling yeah. is the macho man Randy sure. Savage because he was the total package in the ring. He could talk, he had the personality, and he could wrestle, right? The best wrestler, I think, of all times was probably Ric Flair, the nature mm-hmm. boy, mm-hmm. just the best storyteller all around the ring. Mm-hmm. My favorite wrestler of all time was a guy called Mad Dog Buzz Sawyer. Mm-hmm. Mad Dog Buzz Sawyer was a guy who um, – he grew up, okay, he wrestled in Portland under the name Buzzsaw Sawyer, and then he left town, and then I remember as a kid flipping through, like, the channels on the cable, and I, I, I saw him as the mad dog, and I was like, wait, that's Sawyer!" and all of a sudden every cl- everything clicked. Right. Oh, he's not Buzzsaw. He's a guy playing, part, right? So, right. Uh, but I just love watching the Mad mm-hmm. Dog because he is mm-hmm. his his promos are. <laughs> the, you can't understand what he says because he just <laughs> screams and yells, and he doesn't really say words. Um, that's good yeah, stuff. he's he's kind of a he's a he was a brawling wrestler before. There was a lot of brawl wrestlers. Mm-hmm.
2: So. Mm-hmm. Cool. Your questions. It's okay if they're sort of basic. We we know wrestling isn't real in the way we can
1: talk about poems too. We
2: get it. Yeah, yeah that's right. That's a great point. I can't. I <laughs> Hi. Uh, i wondering if you've heard the Mountain Goat's
1: record? I have heard the Mountain Goats record, it's great. Was, yeah.
2: That's like, not a good question. <laughs> 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 yeah. well, I'm going to stab
1: you in the eye with a foreign object.
2: There you go. <laughs> no,
1: I'm not really. That's a lyric <laughs> from the song.
2: Sure.
1: Yeah, it's funny because that guy is like, uh, Don, John Darnell, he's like a big, huge wrestling fan, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah yeah it's a it's a cool album i I'm kind of a heavy metal guy so okay. <laughs> so I can't you know I don't listen to that album a whole lot, but yeah I know that album and it's mm-hmm. um it's really cool the way he like i like the way he does turns into like these folk heroes right right they very much like i am listening to- you know he's singing about Chavo Guerrero, but then i I feel like I'm listening to a song about Pancho Villa at the same mm-hmm, time mm-hmm, right? so
3: mm-hmm mm-hmm
1: Other poets, I think generally, I get good responses because they're weird, you know? They're like, oh, wait, you did what? (laughs) You wrote a poem about pro wrestling? Uh, I think those responses have been good overall. I think uh, when I send, when I've sent these out to magazines and journals, I get good responses because they're weird, and they are doing something that other poems aren't, you know? In terms of, like, the larger poetry world, I'm not so sure that they like it, I think that. Um, they look on it as, oh, pro wrestling, right? And i whatever, I'm okay with that. I, I wrote the book, <laughs> you know? I put it out there, uh, I'll own it. But I, I do think that there are some people who look at the material and think, well, how can that be art? Or is it just, you know, children's poetry, you know? Um, I, I really think that's, that's, that's some, uh, one response that I've had. People look at it and say, oh, pro wrestling, ugh. But, uh, you know... Um, Whatever. <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, you know, that's, I, I got the chance to read the Poetry Foundation like last year and I was like, sweet, I'm bringing pro wrestling to the Poetry Foundation. Um, you know, so I'm having a good time with it. I, I think that the poems, I think the poems hold up. I think the project holds up. Um, and I think there's a lot to be done, you know, using pro wrestling as sort of this canvas for, for poems. It's so hard. Could
3: you please repeat the
1: question for the record? Yeah. Sure. The, question was, um, the question was about voice, about how um, the poems that are within the collection um, have a certain voice, uh, a certain way of working, and how other poems outside the project have a different voice, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, it's so hard. It really is. The um, I don't think of myself as a narrative poet. I really don't. I, I don't even think of myself as a poet. The word is weird to me. I just think of myself as a writer. Uh, But I don't think of myself as a poet, someone who writes poems, I don't think of myself as a narrative poet. That is, I don't think of my my default style is is not going in and like, I am going to tell a story and create a narrative Um, because I write fiction as well. Uh, And if I want to tell stories, usually I go write the fiction for narrative, even though there's something fictional about these poems, um, but weirdly, the, the the narrative voice felt right for this project, right? So, I found myself writing these poems in ways that I don't normally think of poems working. You know, as a reader, a lot of times I look at narrative poems, and I, I find myself wanting the poems not to be be driven by story. And I think these poems are not just driven by story. Um, so I, I really think of myself as more of, generally speaking, more of a, a lyric writer than, than a narrative writer. Um, so it was hard, you know? I, it just felt like, the, as I started writing the book, and I started realizing that there was this story within the poem that was gonna go across all of them, right? The voice was what needed I needed to use to do the work, to tell that story, right? Um, so in a way, the project, the project itself dictated what the voice was going to be. And then once I realized what the voice was going to be, I could just go with it and follow that. That sounds kind of wishy-washy, I know. It sounds kind of mystical. Oh, the poems told me how to write them, right? Um, but really, once you, I think that you know, uh, one of the things that we do in poetry classes is we learn to read other people's poems. Um, and so I think it's just a skill. You start reading other people's poems, you start understanding how they work, you start looking at your own poems and they, you, they start telling you stuff, right? You know like when you read, you read a poem in a workshop, you're like, the poem is telling you as the reader, hi, I don't work very well yet, <laughs> right? And so your poems, your own poems eventually are like, hi, I don't work really well yet, but you know if you punch me right here and tickle me down here and cut my head off and put it down by my feet, Suddenly, I might work, right, and your poems start to tell you that and 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 So that's I mean, yeah, you read the poems and the poems start making sense in a certain way, you know. Does that make sense?
2: Yeah. Okay, good.: We can maybe do one more if, if there's one out there..
3: I'm Poetry, and in fact, it doesn't. Maybe even even if we say everything is suitable for poetry, we don't maybe actually believe that until we see it done well. Mm -hmm. Um, So I guess appreciation, but also I wonder as thinking you brought up the election, thinking about how do we begin to understand folks who feel um, disengaged in whatever way culturally. Um, That's a certain culture though. That's the New York Times or what? Right. So do you see these as as maybe going the other way, too, into into folks who actually watch pro wrestling, or to help people like me who never really watch pro wrestling, except for maybe Hulk Hogan in the 80s, right? It sort of helps me see, if, Does does do these? I guess I'm wondering about the class and the race as part of sort of moving to empathy or something like that. Do you so, that's part of your
1: project? Yeah, the question is sort of like about uh, class and cultural disengagement and how that plays into the project we're writing about pro wrestling, right? I think that I'm going to reinvoke invoke Whitman um, where he says poems are for the common man, right? And I know he's not saying that poems should be about pro wrestling, but these are poems that, what? He might be, he might be but you know, uh, sort of.
0: He's himself one of the roughs.
1: Yeah, but these poems I think are for the roughs, right? These poems are for, uh, one of the responses I have gotten from people who don't read poetry are, oh, I get these, <laughs> right? Um, because they're, they're written not f- necessarily for Don Cher at Poetry Magazine, right? They're not written uh, for an editor of the Parish Review. They're written for people who just want to read poems, you know, or or, or or who know wrestling, or right? They're written for regular people, um, and I think poems can do that. Good poems remind us that they're not for, they're not, poems aren't written so that we have to decipher them and they're not written so that we, uh, in ways that where we have to be smart to get all the references, right? Um, poems are made, us, made to f- make us feel something and we're all capable of feeling. I think that po- that's what poems do. Um, I think that kind of answers the question. But I think that, you know, yes, the answer is yes there's some poems i think poems need to reach sort of across class and across culture and that's impossible for to reach every class and every poem but i think it's something we're always striving for to find you know, okay i talked to my students about um how we have like these different layers of the brain right different layers of the brain there's like the human brain and that's the layer of the brain and that's the layer of the brain where we're like i get logic right and logic things say things to me logically i understand um how things work and how to do things. And at the center of my brain is my lizard brain, which is just raw emotion. I feel hunger, I feel fear, right? I think a poem wants to get at that lizard brain. And human brain is where we think about class and, and, and culture and whether we belong, right? That's where the human brain and... Lizard brain is just love, hate, fear, right? Uh, and that's what we're... I'm, that's what I think that we're getting at in a poem. We need the human brain to make sense of the poem, but yeah, I wanna, we, we all have that lizard brain, regardless of class. We all have the human brain, regardless of class, but the human brain just gets in the way, right? Mm-hmm. I hope that makes sense. Sometimes it makes sense to me, sometimes it doesn't, so.
2: Help me thank Todd one more time, thank you.
0: <laughs> Thanks for listening. Thank you also to our many sponsors African and African Diaspora Studies at Calvin College, Ambrose at Wimcat, the Asian Studies Program at Calvin College, Brazos Press, the Calvin Center for Community Engagement and Global Learning, the Calvin College Campus Store, the Calvin College Associate Dean for Diversity and Inclusion, the Calvin College History Department, the Calvin College Office of the Provost, the Calvin College Department of Sociology and Social Work, Hyams Fund the Calvin College Student Life Division, the Calvin Theater Company, the Christian Reformed Church's Office of Social Justice, Event and Tech Services at Calvin College, the Paul B. Henry Institute at Calvin College, and Schuler Books and Music. You can find more recordings from the 2016 Fall Writer Series and learn more about the work of the Calvin Center for Faith and Writing at our website, ccfw.calvin.edu.